Hello and welcome to Overdrive, a program that takes a broad look at how cars and transport impact our community. I'm David Brown, and in this program we take a look at the latest news stories, including car companies in a race to produce powerful cars, and motorcyclists are 27 times more likely to be killed. How do we know why people choose the paths they take or what form of urban design is good? Jonathan Daly is taking the measurement of the impact of our urban design to a whole new level. We talk to him about this. We road test the little Honda Jazz and in our panel discussion with Errol Smith, we take a carefree look at stories including why people spend so much money on getting the right plate. Have a question or a comment, send it to overdrive at drivenmedia.com.au. You can listen to longer segments of each of the features by going to our website or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. Now, to begin the program, let's have the news. Luxury car manufacturers continue in a race to produce powerful cars. Jaguar has just announced its Project 8, which it claims is the most powerful, agile and extreme performance Jaguar they have ever made. It has 441 kilowatts of power, that's nearly 600 horsepower in the old measure, and only 300 will be made. But this is dwarfed by the new Mercedes-AMG hypercar, which will be powered by an advanced petrol-electric plug-in hybrid drivetrain based on its Formula 1 hybrid engine configuration. As well as the petrol engine, it will have four electric motors with an overall output of 736 kilowatts, or nearly 1,000 horsepower, in the highest performance mode. According to the US National Highway Safety Administration, motorcyclist deaths occur 27 times more frequently than fatalities in other vehicles based on the distance that vehicles travel. In 2015, there were 4,684 motorcyclists killed in motor vehicle crashes. Of those, 27% were alcohol impaired. In America, the blood alcohol concentration level, where a rider becomes illegal, is 0.08, which is higher than in Australia. In addition, 7% of fatally injured motorcycle riders had some alcohol in their bloodstream, although it was within legal limits. Alcohol might be a significant factor in causing an accident, and it might also contribute to risk behaviours that make it more likely that you will die. In 39% of rider fatalities and 52% of motorbike passenger fatalities, the deceased person was not wearing a helmet. The NHTSA estimates that helmets saved the lives of 1,772 motorcyclists in 2015 in America, and if all motorcyclists had worn helmets, an additional 740 lives could have been saved. A recent report claims that motorists waste an average of 29 hours a year going the wrong way because of satellite navigation systems. The survey was conducted in the UK by a company that runs a taxi booking app, so the veracity of the absolute figure of time wasted is open to question. But there were some interesting reflections from participants. In their poll of 2,000 drivers, 27% cite confusing directions as the most annoying aspect of satellite navigation systems. Almost half, 47% of those surveyed, had a verbal disagreement with their device, while 31% admit to shouting at it as if it were a real person. More than half of the respondents admitted they switched off and paid little attention to road signs and landmarks once a sat-nav is leading the way. 
Western Australia is trialling some off-road parking locations as designated areas for people to stop and text messages if they feel the necessity. Rather than trying to stop people texting, they are trying to channel people into doing it in an appropriate way, not when they're driving. It's part of an experiment by some Western Australia road-wise committees and is funded by the West Australian Road Safety Commission. At this stage, it is not carrying out significant construction activities. Some of the off-road parking areas are situated next to driver reviver sites, while others are being used exclusively for texting. It is as much about signposting areas to make a point. Cyclists have problems when travelling on major roads when drivers fail to see them. But vision is not the only problem. When cyclists travel in close proximity to vehicles or even pedestrians, the typical bicycle bell is not always proving to be enough to get attention. Now a company has developed a loud horn for your pedal machine. It's called a loud bicycle. It comes in three levels. The loud classic at 150 Australian dollars. The loud mini, which weighs less and has a longer battery life, is $200. Both of these can be recharged by a USB port and emit a sound of about 125 decibels. The top of the range droid horn will cost some $470 but is still in development. It will need a PowerPoint to recharge and aims to have a bicycle device that sounds like a truck horn. And that has been the news. The concept of designing places is not only creating infrastructure to carry out functions, but fashioning locations which create positive emotions and a sense of well-being. This might be seen as an evolving art form, but maybe not just an art form. It is not just creative people producing things that they think are aesthetically pleasing. I can have an opinion, but what is really impacting the way I react to a mall, a recreational precinct or other community place? Now you can ask people what they think, but that is a response after we have had the experience and that can be affected by the nature of the questions and how we feel we should rationalise our behaviour. Is there a better way? Jonathan Daly has just presented a paper at the Asian Pacific Conference for Place Leaders. He has a good story to tell. So what was the thrust of his presentation? I was focusing very much on, on how we measure place and how um, we measure the impact that it has on psychological and physiological comfort for people. So I, I was presenting um, the development of a, of a new methodology that helps us measure these impacts on a subjective and objective level. Okay. So measuring how people feel about a space, but in terms of what they're able to articulate, but also what they're not able to articulate. So we're looking at what's happening, if you like, in, in the subconscious. We're uh, measuring heart rate, skin sensitivity. We're measuring um, also what's happening in the brain um, through EEG and trying to correlate then what people say with what their body is saying at the same time. So this is, if I design a mall area, it's not just what my personal perception is, and it's not even what people might hurriedly say in a survey, it's how they, as you mm. say, physiologically react to it, which is a much deeper form of measurement? Absolutely. Um, if you consider the fact that we're only aware... Uh, consciously aware of about 5 to 10% of our behaviour 
of what we, we're doing at any point in time. That means the majority of how we experience what goes on around us is on a subconscious level. And the subconscious is incredibly powerful um, compared to our conscious. So it's, we can process about 40 bits of information per second with our conscious. And our subconscious can process 40 million bits per second. So for most of us, it's very difficult. In fact, I think for everyone, it's actually really difficult to articulate why we like a place or why we feel comfortable there or, or uncomfortable. And we, we really need a more rigorous scientific-led approach to, to understand this. Might there be a part in my brain that sort of registers when I have fear, for example? Would that be the sort of information that you might uh, correlate to what person, a person is actually saying? Absolutely. We can with neuroscience. We can, we can um, tell uh, which emotion you're feeling by which part of the brain is um, is activated at that time and we also know that for example you you know we feel first and then later we try and work out why we felt that way and and that's a problem when we uh, in, in terms of the reliability of just asking someone how do you feel and why do you feel that way because that often as you say comes after the event which has a whole pile of different parameters added into it whereas what you're doing is measuring exactly at the event Exactly. That's exactly correct. Now, I wonder whether then that might ultimately lead to things where I get up in the morning, I measure in some way my mood, and uh, the, your algorithms might then say to me, well, I don't think you should go down to the shops today. You'll only get depressed. Uh, I, I mean, <laughs> I'm pushing to the future, but might that happen? I, I think that that's very likely in the future to happen indeed. <laughs> um, I'm sure there will be an app for it at some point um, that will that will measure it in some way. And indeed, I mean, there are certain apps that um, will kind of do things like this or, or, or say they do. Let me take something totally left field. Perhaps then our driving licence test might involve something an awful lot more than doing a reverse park and a few other things. You drive around the street, mm. perhaps measured for a while, and you are assessed both on your abilities to do something but also your impact on others. I'm, I'm dreaming a little here, but perhaps we might even <laughs> move to that direction. I, I think it's, it's, it's certainly possible, whether it's politically acceptable at yeah. this stage. Um, I'm not sure, but um, it's it's absolutely possible and it would be quite interesting i mean you could certainly you know you could simulate that in a lab and and, and test it and, and see what kind of results you get back but to, to do it in in a in a real um, environment would be even more enlightening and perhaps we may never get there yet we might trial it which would give us some idea of what the tests of the future might need to be like even if we don't measure everyone to the intensity that you're talking about Mm. Of course, the, the the more interesting way to do this, but um, virtually impossible, would be to wire up the other people on the road <laughs> to see how they respond to your driving. <laughs> Jonathan Daly is an urbanist, a professional who looks at how our towns and cities function and how we can create a better community through informed design. This is Overdrive across Australia.
We've been testing a few powerful cars recently, which is fine for the ref heads, but what about practical motoring? Well, the Honda Jazz is in the light car class. That's the second smallest. It's quite a spread of vehicles there, about 14 or so, right down to the Toyota Prius C is part of this market. The Hyundai Accent is leading it with about 21% of the market. Mazda 2, Toyota Yaris, and then in fourth place, the Honda Jazz, ahead of things like the Volkswagen Polo and even ahead of the Kia Rio, which is interesting because that uh, has just come out. It's selling a bit better by month by month now. And uh, if you looked at the recent month rather than the year to date, it would be a bit higher. So it's an interesting market, and driving the Honda Jazz was Errol Smith and I. We've had a go at it, and Errol joins me on the line now. G'day, David. G'day, Errol. What uh, do you think uh, about it? A pretty zippy little car? Yeah, it was. Um, I, I thought it was pretty quick um, in the scheme of things, um, given it's a little 1.5-litre engine and um, a nice, easy-to-use easy five-speed gearbox. 88 kilowatts. That's not bad, really, for that size vehicle. Yeah, it's it's pushing over, pushing around a little bit, just a tad over a ton, metric ton. So it's um, you know, it's it's quick enough. It's no no rocket, but uh, it's quick enough. Um, you can get a CVT auto if you're prepared prepared to throw in another two grand, but um, but our test car had the manual. The only thing is, I would have liked it to have had a sixth gear. Hmm. I think I almost put it, tried to put it into reverse when, on the freeway, yep. uh, which which could have gone horribly wrong. <laughs> I found it a little notchy, not un- badly notchy. There were some cars, the recent, what was it, the Bacanto, the Kia Bacanto, was a really soft gear change. It was almost like pushing a knife through butter, whereas mm. this one, you could even hear the synchromesh as you, as you went down a gear back to second, say. Yeah, it was, it's a very sort of traditional manual. Mm. Yeah, uh, But yeah. Uh, spacious? Yeah, it's um, I think it's uh, probably got a fair bit of room given the the class that it's in. The rear leg room's excellent for adults, mm. so you can comfortably carry four adults or you know maybe two adults and three kids. Mm. Um, and the boot's not bad either. Noisy. I was surprised how quiet it was even at freeway speeds. Not not too much wind noise. And good visibility. Yeah, it's you've got a, a quite a large front and side windows, so visibility is pretty good all round, and you've got a, a reverse, reversing camera as standard as well. Oh, look, I think that's fantastic. Could you get yeah. comfortable in the driving position? Yeah, it, it wasn't too bad. I, I wouldn't call it excellent. Um, the, the seats don't have a lot of adjustment, but the steering wheel does have full adjustment in and out and up and down, which is um, uh, nice to see. And economy, what would you get out of the little four-cylinder engine? The one we had, you'd get about 6.2 litres per 100, but if you go to the uh, auto, you can get 5.8 on the combined. It's better. Yeah, it's actually better. It used to be the other way around. And the CVT, I think, helps that. Uh, I've, yeah, uh, it certainly does. Yeah. I've got in these cars, and I have a, a bit of a problem with the controls in terms of the entertainment volume and things, but uh, syncing the phone, key issue now these days. Was it good? Yes, it, it was pretty pretty easy to sync. Um, the only problem I had is that sometimes the controls didn't work, hmm. even though it was uh, connected. The um, hanging up, like answering the phone and things, didn't seem to be very reliable. So that's uh, something for for Honda to have a look at, I think. I also found sometimes it was easy to sync, but then when you wanted to go to Bluetooth and that, it got a little bit unnecessarily complicated. The other thing, I hopped in the car to put it in the driveway, so it was sort of getting you know, late-ish into the night, and the last person, my wife, had been driving it, and I think the kid had been in the car as well. I got in and the sound just blared. 
Now the screen didn't show me where I could change the volume. I had to go to another screen to find that out. And I eventually yeah. turned the car off and sat down and, and you know, meditated for a bit before I, I tried to get into this again because I knew what was going to happen. I was going to turn it on, it was going to blare at me, and I was going to struggle to try and get the volume down lower. Yeah, it's uh, that you've, you've had uh, teenager symptoms um, there. In summary then, Errol? It's an affordable small car that kind of does what you need but not much more. Good engine, quiet ride, flexible seating, and it's easy to park and drive. Talking about it, what's it cost? The one we had is about seventeen grand, give or take, on the road. That was with uh, the whopping $495 for the metallic paint. Errol, lovely to talk to you. Thanks very much for your time. No worries, David. That's Errol Smith, and we were talking about the Honda Jazz, and you can hear a longer version of that interview by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au. You're listening to Overdrive. There has just been a major car auction, well, automotive auction, let me say, about uh, in in Sydney, <coughs> in Sydney, where the prices were reasonable in most things. But you know, I think you could probably get a bargain. The 1974 Chevy Big Block with a manual gearbox, quite a rare car. It sold for $29,000. You could get an old FJ Holden. No, in fact, an early one, FX, for $46,000, much more than they ever paid uh, they paid for. You could even get one of those great cars that were part of that uh, uh, movie that had Burt Reynolds in it with uh, the car that the Firebird, the Pontiac Firebird, 1977, for $50,000. A glorious car was passed in at 190000 I refer to the 1938 Cadillac V16, a fantastic convertible wow. coupe. Didn't make 90, 100, well, it made 190, but wasn't enough, but. The number plate number 29 made $745,000 wow. for a number plate. Errol Smith joins me again. Errol, you're obviously overwhelmed by those numbers. Three quarters of a million dollars for a number plate, huh? I guess people, people really want a number plate that's easy to remember. <laughs> They're not very bright. What's your number plate? No, no, I can remember this. Yeah. <laughs> I bought one that's only got two digits, so it was easier. <laughs> well, apparently there's a story out too that, of course, the Northern Territory, uh, 20,000 personalised plates, 11% of the registered vehicle, $185 uh, for various designs, a seven-character personalised number plate will set you back more than $3,000. Why do people do this, Errol? Uh, because they can, David. And the, the reason that 11% of registered vehicles in the Northern Territory have a personalised number plate is because it's cheap. It's 185 bucks, and, it, and that's a one-off. Whereas if you look at um, a place like New South Wales, you can be charged up to $450 per year for a personalised plate. So only it's only the one percenters uh, who uh, who can use this one in at least in New South Wales. But in NT, anyone can do it. We've done stories about this uh, that to do with religion. Krishna, I think, was a number plate in the UK. It sold for five million dollars, and th there are other 
number plates that you presume will produce a financial benefit for for good luck the number eight is often used a lot yet uh, i think there in many cases uh, it's just so pretentious although i do like them where there is a unique message which is clever but it's not going out of the way i just put on facebook a picture of an old split screen combi van which obviously had someone living in it and the number plate was no rent <laughs> yes yes there's a there's a whole there's a whole list of of things you can't do with a number plate oh, yes of course so of course. you know obscene blasphemous offensive sexually explicit violent or discriminatory can't be can't be had on there and there's a whole bunch of other uh exemptions as well you can't have the name of a country or a state for example okay so you can't put new south wales or or nt in there for in this example i like them when they do which something's clever a mate of mine had the number plate which was the same as the back to the future car i think that was the one. Oh yes or an, uh, it was some movie very few people got it except occasionally someone had come up to him and say yeah i like that and that was nice. That 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 had subtlety. Uh, it wasn't in your face. It wasn't pre- wasn't pretentious. It was just a nice little reflection. There's a guy that had SPQR, which is the initialization of the Latin phrase Senatus uh, Populusque Romanus, the Roman Senate and the people, or the Senate and the people of Rome. So. That meant something to classical scholars. But there's a whole pile of, you know, Flash, I'm a Fox, Gifted, the VIP. These are some from Queensland. Oh, I think that's trashy. I just, you know, to say to publicise that I spent money on buying that, I think is just silly. It makes people happy, David. You may not agree with it, but that's what people want to do. It is unique. Yes. So if I buy a very sexy car, someone else might buy one as well. They might even buy a better model or a different colour or bigger wheels. So the car itself is not unique unless it's very, very unusual or you've modified it in a unique way. But this is one way, no problem, just pay money and you've got the answer. Yes. Yes. But then again, Errol, you could drive a car if you're in Singapore, which comes to you in an unusual way. Yeah, David, I thought I'd seen everything that could be done from a vending machine, but now you can buy a car from one. Um, Resembling a full-size matchbox car display case, uh, the new 15-storey showroom for Autobahn Motors in Singapore can hold up to 60 cars. And interested buyers can have the one they're interested in whisked down to them by a sort of robotic valet uh, in only a minute or two. Um, I, I wonder, David, just how many coins will you need to have in your pocket <laughs> to get yes. that to get that Ferrari from from level thirteen? If you had a credit card with frequent flyer points on it, that'd be very good. I heard someone bought a sixty-five thousand dollar. BMW with their credit card, a gold card from Amex, I think, which has double points. Yes. And 
<clears throat> they flew around the world first class or something with it. Mm. The other thing is, if the thing doesn't drop, do you have to bang the machine? Yes. <laughs> do, you have to, do you have to bang the side of the building until the, the car you want falls into the slot? <laughs> I, was, I was thinking, though, because there's Bentleys, Ferraris and Lamborghinis in there, so you actually need to have one of those infamous black Amexes. Yes. Just swipe here. Can, can cars get stale? Like any vending machine, or perhaps perhaps it really is like Coke, all sugar and not good for your health. Mm. You know, if you're well, buying course, one of these things. Well, of course, when they put another car in there, they have to make sure they do stock rotation. The oldest ones at the front. Yeah. What what happens if you bought one, and it was last year's plates? And how do you sign it? I I, I don't know. And and by the way, I'm presuming they're real size, because you never know until it comes out. But still, you can always get the car of your dreams. But what will the car of your dreams have in the future? What are the optional extras or the features that you want on a car? In the past, it might have been mag wheels and things to look good. It then might have been a big, powerful engine. Perhaps we've moved to connectivity. But in this case, there are things, be it a car or any form of transport, that we might really need to have. And one of them is the fact that we may spend a lot longer in the car or on the train than we have in the past. Autonomous cars, we can do other things, but will we need to have a car that has a toilet? Uh, Errol, you you know that uh, a gentleman has fabricated a car urination system so he can pee while driving. I I presume it's like... The old train, it drops it out the bottom. So, sorry, I meant the bottom of the car. Yeah, yes, just to clarify, this is only for number ones. Yes, we should, we should clarify this. <laughs> there isn't a hole straight through the base of the seat. Mm. Uh, it's just condensation from the AC officer, I swear. <laughs> and the AC is a little dehydrated. Yes, and a little yellow. Uh, uh, but uh, looking at the photos, this guy's actually basically got a, a, a sort of plastic tube and, and run it from the seat down through the through the floor of the car out to underneath, so he can just have a little have a little pee as he goes. It's it's not particularly brilliant, uh, but but no. but it does raise the point. And I've said this actually to car manufacturers. You know, you may have to consider this in the future if I have to sit for three hours albeit the fact that the car is drying being itself. But the mm. other point is I'm going to spend time. The other is that I might need to get food. Ah, Errol, lovely to talk to you again. Thank you once again for your time. No worries, David. See Errol, Errol Smith talking some unusual stories, some quirky stories, and some stories of the future, but perhaps not ones that will make it into the car brochure. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Jonathan Daly, Errol Smith and Paul Just for their great help during the program. Overdrive can be heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network. You can listen to longer segments of each of the features by going to our website at drivenmedia.com.au or podcast the whole program on iTunes or your favourite podcast service. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.